From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Thursday, the 15th of October 2020, and we have a good full show lined up for you this morning. We're going to be speaking first with uh, Dan Bowles of Seven Days, uh, a team of Seven Days reporters uh, joined to produce an excellent package uh, in, in yesterday's edition of uh, the Weekly Burlington Paper, in which they talk about the different ways that people are trying to cope with the coronavirus pandemic, uh, not just sort of all the different and, and other crises that are hitting us, uh, people very concerned about the upcoming election and many other things going on in our world right now. Uh, it's been a tough year for many, many people in the United States, and I, I, I assume around the world. Uh, and uh, Seven Days did a did a story, a series of stories, package of stories, I guess is the proper term, about uh, how folks are are coping with all of that. In the uh, in the second half hour, we're going to be speaking with a University of Vermont professor, Asim Zia, and. Uh, he is an expert on using digital technology to, to uh, track climate change and uh, really doing some uh, crackerjack uh, research in that area. We're going to be speaking with him in the second half hour of the program. Later on, uh, Jen Swain of Burton Snowboards and Richard Eidlin uh, t- talked to us about, he's with a national group of business leaders uh, devoted to the idea of trying to make sure we have a... Uh, a free and fair and accurate, et cetera, election this year. And we're going to be speaking with them about what some businesses are doing to try to promote the idea of getting people out to vote, making sure that the votes are, are uh, tallied accurately. That will be in the second hour of the program today. In between, I believe we're going to have a visit from one of our CBS News correspondents uh, giving us the latest on uh, what's going on with the coronavirus nationwide. And um, we have, uh, as I say, a good full show, but uh, let's start right in with uh, Dan Bowles of Seven Days. I believe he's on the phone with us. Good morning. Good morning, Dan. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, hey, Dave. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. So, uh, you you guys had a had a really interesting package of stories uh, uh, over or yes in yesterday's edition. Uh, tell me about sort of what the what the mission was and uh, how you came up with it and what the uh, what the upshot of the whole package is in your estimation. Yeah, sure. Um, so we uh, had been having some internal conversations um, about different ways to address the fact that uh, everyone is really stressed out right now. Um, I think, you know, just listening to the, the news update that you guys just ran on the break there, um, you can kind of get a sense of why people are, <laughs> are a little on edge at the moment. So what we really wanted to do um, was to look at some ways, um, both conventional and maybe a little offbeat, um, that people could explore, um, you know, de-stressing. So um, everything from how to find a mental health professional, like getting counseling and what to expect from that experience, um, to weird little hobbies like punch, uh, punch needle rug hooking um, and kind of everything in between. So um, we just wanted to cast a wide net um, and kind of see what was out there and uh, get some advice from, uh, from folks who, who really know how to uh, you know, uh, calm down and de-stress. Is it your estimation that, that people are really uh, is it, uh, struggling and is the str- sense of struggle widespread or um, are the majority of people sort of getting through their daily lives even if they've changed somewhat uh, with uh, some degree of equanimity? Uh, you know, I think um, that has been um, certainly my um, experience and observation um, just from my personal fear of, of coworkers and friends, but I think it's also 
um, the observation of um, a lot of people around the state. Um, the Department of Health did a study in August that measured um, kind of levels of stress among younger people um, from before the pandemic and afterwards, and they found um, that the rates of depression and anxiety um, of like disinterest in things that you used to enjoy um, were way, way up um, after um, after everyone went into lockdown. Um, I think there are other indicators as well. Um, you know, al- uh, retail sales of alcohol, for example, um, are skyrocketing um, as people have kind of turned to alcohol to take the edge off. Um, so there's you know there's things like that. Um, you can look in um, you know, look at the opioid crisis. We've had um, increasing rates of uh, non-fatal overdoses um, from opioids. So you know all these little indicators are, are kind of telling us that. Uh, people one are really stressed out, um, and two maybe aren't handling it as, uh, handling it as well um, as we could be. Yeah, and those are uh, those are troubling things. I mean, it's sort of understandable why if uh, people have in the past and at maybe other stressful times in their lives reached for things like uh, alcohol or opiates or whatever that they would do so more now, but um, still. Uh, not to be advised, I guess, is the best way to dis- to describe it, just from a pure layperson's perspective. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I obviously uh, it is a an, it's, there's a strong temptation there to uh, try to smooth out the stress of a day or whatever with uh, some kind of a substance, but uh, it's it, it's probably not a it's not a healthy path, I guess, is the best way to describe it. And and um, is your sense from talking to Various therapists and so on. That I mean, I'm trying. I'm still trying to get a picture of the universe here of folks who are affected. Let's take anxiety and depression. Uh, I don't know what percentage of the population reported being affected by these things previous to the pandemic. But you know, if it was 10% and it jumped to uh, 20 during the pandemic, that would be a doubling. Uh, if it, obviously, if it jumped to 30 or 40, that's a huge increase. Um, is, is, are there any sort of survey data f- pointing in the, pointing toward an answer there? Uh, yeah, there is. Um, so unfortunately, I don't have the numbers directly in front of me, but um, I believe uh, you know if you look at um, rates of anxiety and depression, I think before the pandemic, um, it was something around like thirty percent of people ages eighteen to twenty-five um, reported. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some level of anxiety or depression. And those numbers jump depending on which um, category we're looking at. I think in some cases, you know, above 50%. In one case, I want to say it was around 75%. Um, so I think it's pretty clear, um, you know, based on that data and some other other studies that have been done um, that people are, are really kind of feeling the pressure from um, everything that's going on in the world right now. And is there any sorting out whether it's, you know, I mean, there are different causes. I'm sure there are people who uh, uh, are experiencing real concern about the pandemic and or maybe have family members who uh, have actually suffered from the coronavirus or maybe they have themselves. And obviously, uh, when it when it sort of shows up in your own personal life, that's a huge stressor. Um, but I'm wondering sort of what percentage is uh, experiencing all of that versus what percentage is um you know, upset by the president's remarks that he's not promising a nonviolent transition of power if he loses the election, just for one example. Sure, yeah. Well, you know, I think, um, I don't know if there's actually been any research on, like, specifically, you know, if it's one thing or another. I, I have a feeling um, that it's probably a combination. You know, it's like, you know, pick a card, any card. What is it today? Like, <laughs> the pandemic, the climate crisis, murder hornets. 
um, you know, there's, it seems like every day there's something new. Um, and, you know, it's easy, I think, to kind of get desensitized to it because the onslaught of, of bad news is, is so um, prevalent. Um, so if I, if I had to guess, and I am just guessing right now, um, and I could speak from my own personal experience, that I, I think it's a combination of, of all of these factors that seem to be coming um, at unprecedented speed right now. Yeah, and uh, well, and what are folks recommending when you talk to uh, therapists and other professionals involved in trying to help people uh, navigate this time? Uh, what are they recommending? Sure, um, that was actually one of the more interesting things to me about this. Um, you know, I think that we, if we, if you really think about it, we all probably know. Um, the behaviors that we should be practicing um, to feel better, right? Um, so eating healthy, um, exercising, get a good night's sleep, um, try not to be in front of your screen all day. Um, you know, all of those things are kind of like the, the baseline stuff that we should all be doing regardless of whether um, there's a pandemic or, uh, you know, socioeconomic crisis. Um, but one of the takeaways uh, for me from all of this is that um, the best thing to do is really, you know, whatever you get, the most enjoyment and relief from. Um, so, you know, for some people that might just be, you know, taking a walk in the woods or maybe you got a puppy during the pandemic and that's helping you out. Um, you know, other people uh, go with their niche hobbies, like our, our writer who uh, picked up rug hooking. Um, I actually bought a, or my girlfriend actually got me a, a bonsai tree um, <laughs> over the summer, which I'd always kind of wanted to try and I found it really, really relaxing. Um, which you got you a what? I didn't, I didn't catch that. <laughs> Uh, a bonsai tree, uh, you know the, the, the little Japanese uh, trees, like you um, kind of manicure them like little shrubs. Um, oh yeah, really, yeah, really, okay, yep. Yeah, yeah, really, really soothing uh, thing to do. Um, we had another writer who um, she didn't really have like a, a specific thing um, that she was doing to de-stress, other than just kind of allowing herself to indulge some of her uh, more baser impulses. So, you know, in, in her essay, she, she writes about going for a run down in the Intervale um, in Burlington, and she just had this overwhelming urge to, like, lie face down in the dirt. And so that's what she did. <laughs> and she said, yeah. you know, to be, um, to be really, uh, really relaxing and, and freeing. So um, I know that's kind of an offbeat and maybe extreme example, um, but the takeaway, I think, is that, you know, find the things, ideally healthy things, um, that uh, that give you some relief, and you know, don't be shy about doing them. It's kind of funny. I noticed uh, one of the sidebars had to do with uh, this Montpelier-based business, uh, a clear space, uh, and um, uh, Deb Fleischman, the uh, proprietor of the uh, of this business, uh, was talking about just helping people get their stuff organized. <laughs> and uh, it's it, it, when I was reading it, I said, "Holy cow!" I, without even really thinking about this as a strategy. I have had this uh, kind of kick myself this spring and summer anyway, and continuing some into the fall actually, uh, of uh, putting up new shelves and trying to get stuff organized. And uh, uh, so there's a ton of new shelves in my house. I just put some in my shed a couple of weeks ago, and and uh, sure enough, we're we're slowly uh, trying to uh, just uh, battle entropy, you know. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, there's, there's a natural tendency, I think, of stuff to become disorganized. I, I think that's the basic definition of entropy. And uh, so um, we, uh, I guess, we're, we're we're battling that, and that's our our method of trying to assert some kind of control over something. So that, we'll we'll see if that uh, 
helps in the long run. I don't know, but um, anyway, um, and, and so you're, uh, and, and actually, I'm, I'm really curious to hear what uh, what listeners have to say about all this. What folks out there, what have you been doing to try to manage the stress of uh, of this 2020? Uh, just a, um, uh, of course, you know, one one friend of mine was, was uh, joking that uh, it was it, it's mainly stressful because all of a sudden we can see everything clearly because it's 2020. Or something like that. I don't know. Um, anyway, um, but but I'm wondering, you know, from from our listeners in WDEV listener land, uh, are have you been taking up any new uh, any new hobbies or any new activities that uh, are designed to uh, just keep yourself busy and out of trouble and away from the liquor cabinet or whatever else? Uh, uh, give us a call here at two four four one seven seven seven. That's the local number in Waterbury. The uh, toll free number is one eight seven seven. Two nine one eight two five five or two nine one talk. We uh, welcome the full range of views here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. My guest is Dan Bowles, who uh, led up a uh, uh, a really uh, co- uh, cool project that uh, the seven days the Burlington-based paper did uh, in yesterday's edition, which was to run a bunch of stories just on how people are trying to cope with all of the current stresses. Aside from the pandemic and the politics, uh, what are tops on people's mind for uh, for things bothering them, uh, would you say, Dan? Um, you know, I think uh, a big thing, and this is all, it all kind of relates um, to, to each other, but um, economic insecurity um, is a big one. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of people, especially if, if they have children, um, you know, they're worried about um, child care and, and homeschooling. Um, you know, people worried about whether they're going to have a job through the winter, um, and you know what what things are going to look like um, as we as we head into uh, so the colder months, um, which are they they tend to be kind of kind of a downer anyway. So you add the rest of this stuff to it. Um, I did uh, while while you were uh, talking to the listeners there, I, I did find uh, some of the numbers from that uh, from that study. Um, I may have overestimated or, or overrepresented um, some of them, but. Uh, just for an example of a couple, um, the, sure. the young adult survey that the, uh, the Department of Health did. Um, so before the pandemic, um, uh, young adults ages 18 to 25 reported um, little interest or pleasure in doing things at a rate of about 27%. So 27% of the people who responded to that survey um, said that they, they had little interest or pleasure in doing anything. After the pandemic started, um, that number jumped up to 42%. Um, you see similar numbers for people who felt depressed. Um, or hopeless before the pandemic. That went from 33 to 50%. Um, folks who felt nervous, anxious, or on edge um, was about 49% before the pandemic and jumped up to 59% um, after uh, after lockdown. So I'm um, definitely seeing you know, spikes in, in that kind of stuff. I want to know who, who are the 41% that don't feel nervous or anxious or on edge right now. Um, what, are, what are you guys doing? Um, so, yeah, so those are, those are the numbers. Yeah, and one one uh, one thing I've seen in a couple of uh, people close to me in my life is um, they've had good luck if they're feeling down or blue or like they're not enjoying just uh, what the daily life that they're living. Um, occasionally, they've they've taken advice to um, uh, go and volunteer somewhere and sort of uh, put yourself in service to others. Tends to take your mind off your own problems and maybe uh, uh, bring up closer to your attention the fact that you know other people are just objectively, frankly, worse off than you are, and also um, uh, I think really helps to kind of build up uh, some emotional strength from the fact that you are capable capable of helping other people. I had one person close to me who uh, went and volunteered in an adult literacy program and 
And, uh, you know, I remember one time she said, well, <laughs> even if, on the days I'm feeling blue, I could say, at least I can read. And actually I can help other people learn how to read. And it's such a crucial skill, uh, just to get, get along in life that, uh, um, you know, you can see how that uh, helping to impart that to other people can really be, uh, can kind of build one's own self, uh, sense of self-worth and all that sort of thing. So, um, I mean, I, I would guess that, that some of the therapists are, talk to their, you folks interviewed would talk to their patients about that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. That's such a great, um, such a great outlet and great thing to do. I'm kind of wishing we had included something about volunteering, um, in the package. Um, you know, it's one of the things, um, that a couple of people, um, uh, with various levels of, or various areas of expertise talked about is, um, you know, there's so much going on right now that is beyond our control, and it's really easy to feel, you know, kind of set adrift and like you you have no control over anything. So finding those yeah. things that you you do have control over, whether it's something simple like this is what I'm going to make for dinner tonight, and you focus <laughs> on that. I read that. <laughs> and, I know, said, that yeah. No, I ever get to eat it when you're done. I hope it's good. Dan, maybe you could tell me how to describe this because I always stumble on it a little bit. Um, you're not just a weekly. You're also a very active website, which is, uh, I don't know, what, daily, minutely? Or, <laughs> so, how, <laughs> how should I describe seven days on the air these days? Sure. So, I mean, we, uh, you know, we're an alt-weekly news, uh, media organization, I guess. You know, we, uh, started, began life as, uh, as a newspaper, but obviously, um, transitioned quite a bit into the digital world as well. Um, and yeah, we, uh, we post updates, um, you know, several times a day, um, whatever news breaks, uh, whether it's, you know, hard news or, or arts news, um, whatever, uh, whatever folks are looking for. Um, we, we tend to try to stay on it as best as we can, um, through, through our website and then, uh, do deeper dives kind of in, uh, in the print edition. Yeah, and um, frequently this stuff is just terrific. I mean, if any folks out there aren't, aren't regularly checking out seven days, it's uh, well worth picking up. And certainly the price is right. It's free on your on your, at most uh, retail outlets around the state and places like that. And so uh, uh, it's uh, it's a, a lot of good material in there. Well worth reading. It's not you know it's not just a sometimes people see a free publication. I think on the rack and think it's you know just a shopper or something, but. Uh, Nope, there's some serious journalism going on here too, folks. So, uh, check that out. Seven days. Anyway, uh, I did want to circle back to this, uh, to, uh, uh, your sort of earlier comments about many more people, uh, seeking therapy. And, and I know you interviewed therapists who were saying that, uh, you know, that obviously we're here and we can help. Um, I, I, uh, I've heard from folks that sort of in normal times that it's sometimes difficult to find, uh, therapists available just, you know, because people tend to get booked and, uh, uh, you, you know, we see similar shortages occasionally just among like primary care doctors, at least here in the central Vermont area. Um, what about that? Are, are, are people, uh, you know, trying to maybe get into therapy and finding it hard to find somebody who's got openings? Yeah, um, at least uh, anecdotally, that that seems to be the case. Um, you know, the, uh, the therapists and counselors that I that I spoke with um, pretty much all reported um, seeing increases in requests um, for for therapists. Um, I can tell you from my own personal experience, um, trying to find one, that it was a, it was a long process, and I was I was told by several folks that they were just full up 
um, and, and didn't have room to, to take on new patients. So um, I think uh, with the increased demand, um, I don't know if there's I wouldn't I don't know if there's a shortage necessarily, but um, it, it can definitely take a while, um, and, and you need to do a little bit of legwork to uh, to find folks that that have openings and also you know have the expertise to, to handle whatever it is um, that you're you're looking to deal with. And um, uh, I noticed one of the uh, therapists you interviewed um, were talking about how, you know, the the folks who were who were interested in in trying this uh, will need to be ready to put in some effort. Uh, what does that What does that involve for the client? Uh, well, I, I am not I am not a therapist, so, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I think ideally when you when you go into a um, a, a therapist patient relationship, um, what you're really trying to do is is come up with kind of an action plan for, for how to deal with, um, you know, whatever whatever malady it is. So um, you can almost look at it like, um, you know, any kind of medical procedure. Like, um, you know, my girlfriend just had a hip replacement surgery, so now she's got um, all of these things that she needs to do um, in therapy to kind of get her limb back to back to full strength. So um, I, yeah. I think it's a pretty, pretty apt analogy to make with mental health, too. There are um, you know, exercises and, you know, things that you need to be thinking about um, and working on to kind of get your, your mental health um, as, as strong as it can be. Well, certainly uh, it's been a challenge this year, and I appreciate uh, you, Dan Bowles, coming on our air on WDEV and talking about it and talking about Seven Days. Excellent package of stories in this week's paper. Check it out, folks. And, uh, Dan, thanks so much for joining me this morning. You know, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Dave. Alrighty. Hey, we just have a minute or so to go before the bottom of the hour break, and I wanted to take that minute to tell you that uh, um, today being uh, Thursday, well, tomorrow actually is the better day. <laughs> I should have done this tomorrow, but I'm happy to uh, give you an advance warning that we'll have another another edition of uh, Governor Phil Scott's regular news conference he puts on with other top state officials talking about the uh, talking about the coronavirus pandemic and. Uh, Looks like there may be an uptick in parts of Vermont, which is not a good thing. But uh, the uh, health commissioner uh, Levine and uh, Governor Scott and other other folks are have been on top of it, and uh, we'll uh, match whatever whatever challenges come up, folks. The 9:30 break comes with CBS News and a couple of words from our sponsors. We'll be back with more of the Dave Graham Show to follow. Stay with us, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We're back, and I want to introduce my next guest. Uh, this is uh, this uh, second segment of uh, the Thursday show these days is when we are devoting our uh, time to our Seeds to Society uh, segment we're putting on in conjunction with the University of Vermont's uh, College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. And I uh, uh, love the range of topics that they are bringing to us as suggestions and uh, helping to uh, helping to find guests for us to come on and talk about. We have a really interesting guest coming on in just a minute after I introduce him. Uh, Dr. Asim Zia is a professor of public policy and computer science. Uh, that's an interesting combo. Public Policy and Computer Science in the UVM's Department of Community Development and Applied Economics. And uh, 
looks like from the bio I'm seeing here, it's pretty long. I won't read the whole thing to you, but it looks like he is uh, focused a lot on uh, using uh, computer technology to track uh, climate change and also to uh, help uh, help different regions around the world uh, with uh, trying to clean up their own environmental uh, issues, including in some of the major rivers of the world, uh, the Amazon Basin in South America, of course, the Jordan River in uh, the Middle East, and, and uh, he is... Um, uh, someone who is uh, doing also uh, work right here in Vermont, as one would expect of a University of Vermont professor. Professor Asim Zia uh, is on the phone. Thank you very much, sir, for joining us this morning. Uh, Dave, thank you very much for the kind introduction. Look forward to our discussion. And uh, so tell me a little bit about the uh, – well, here I will read this part of the biography. Uh, the biography that uh, uh, UVM's CALS uh, folks shared with me. Uh, you recently received a um, uh, Fulbright Global Scholar Award to uh, achieve access to clean water through community-based solutions and uh, international diplomacy. And it looks like the um, uh, the uh, award is geared toward trying to get to folks who are bordering rivers, including the Indus in, uh, in uh, South Asia, the Jordan, as I mentioned, and the Amazon, uh, to work on uh, cleaning up those river basins and improving, I'm sure, water quality and so on. Tell, tell us about that. What are what are these projects uh, un- trying to uh, get done? Yeah, Dave, thank you very much. Um, so this is part of a long-term uh, initiative that we've taken at the University of Vermont under the Institute for Environmental Diplomacy and Security, but also Vermont EPSCO projects are involved in um, um, understanding the impacts of uh, climate change and all these other globalization-induced disruptions on, like, how much, uh, like, the water quantity and water quality would be affected by these changes that are happening at uh, different scales. Uh, and then climate change is one of the major drivers that we're trying to understand. And in that context, what we have found, for example, is that Climate change can bring um, issues like floods and droughts and heat waves and cold snaps, um, and that can have a direct effects on agriculture and urban and all kinds of sectors, energy sectors, um, and also indirect effects like the water quality could be impacted from the uh, runoff that comes off of the farm or uh, the stormwater. So we've been like trying to understand these in different scales, and um, in that context, what we have found is that uh, in places like Sudan, and the drought impacted migration and conflicts uh, in 1980s, and we've studied that extensively. And more recently in Syria, for example, climate change induced drought led to uh, migration of refugees um, uh, from rural to urban areas. And then eventually that led to conflict, that led to migration uh, like of Syrians in Europe and in many other parts of the world. So we're trying to avert these water wars, these crises or these conflicts that might emerge by finding sustainable and resilient and cooperation and diplomacy-based solutions across different systems. So Indus Basin, for example, is like already a source of like transboundary uh, shared between uh, China, uh, India, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. Um, and uh, we, I've been working there in, for two decades now, and what we have found is that uh, the Kashmir region where the conflict is going on right now, um, that's, that, that's the headland waters and upstream system and whatever, whatever happens in upstream uh, that affects downstream. Similarly, in Jordan River, uh, Israel and Palestine, uh, we've been kind of looking at where the drought has been really big effect there. Um, and, and water scarcity is a major challenge, especially in the rural areas. And in Amazon Basin, like there are major with climate change, there, there are issues that maybe 
uh, tropical forests might even shift its regime and become something else, like a grassland, uh, if we do not change our path to the climate change. So this Fulbright project is aimed at engaging um, international, like uh, with the U.S. Department of State uh, diplomats uh, across all the countries uh, that share these river basins, um, as well as um, uh, scientific hydro- hydrological experts and civil society, uh, citizen scientists, um, in, an, uh, in a, a way to find the cooperative solutions uh, that range from um, uh, amending existing uh, international treaties, like Indo-Space Treaty or Amazon Treaty called ACTO, uh, or um, finding more community-based solutions where communities that share the waters upstream and downstream, they figure out some benefit-sharing mechanisms. Uh, so, for example, downstream communities can pay upstream communities to maintain forests and so forth. So these are like basically that a uh, little bit long-winded answer, but I just wanted to give you the breadth and the depth of this project. It's really interesting to me because most of the times when I'm thinking about uh uh, let's take India and Pakistan or, or, or China and Afghanistan, for instance. Um, I'm, and I'm hearing about, uh, and I'm watching news related to these places, for instance. You know, a lot of it is just about kind of standard military conflict and land, uh, land issues and dis- disputes and, uh, other things like that. And, uh, rarely do I hear really any, any in-depth discussion, uh, in my sort of cursory understanding of these places of, the role that something like the Indus, Indus uh, River would play uh, in the relations between the, these uh, these countries, and um, so can the river. I mean, and I'm sure it it varies from place to place, but in, in the case of South Asia, can can the uh, do you think that the that there's hope that the river can actually be a focal point for improved relations between these countries, or is it a uh, more of a sore spot and something which it generates disagreement. Um, I think uh, they, they, that's kind of like the, because these are shared resources, so there are a lot of people, communities, like in the Indus and it's one of the oldest civilizations in human history, dating back to about 5,000 years in the recorded history. And civilization has evolved over the years and centuries, and um, people have found ways to kind of like share that resource together. But with now an increasing population and all these climate change that's happening at the global scale is leading to the melting of the glaciers, for example. So Indus Basin is very vulnerable to climate change in the sense that uh, 35% of the water in the Indus Basin comes from um, glacial meltwater. And then another, so with the climate change, also the amount of water that's coming into the basin is going down. So that, those concerns are, at, at, at this point, um, creating fractures and frictions on the top of the existing frictions that exist. Um, on the other hand, um, in our work, we've been trying to figure out like how we can use natural resources as a way to find cooperation and diplomat- diplomatic solutions. Um, especially what we do is like track two and track three diplomacy in, in like these are active interventions using uh, science and environment as a way to find cooperative solutions. And in that work, what we have found is that when we talk about water quantity allocations, like who's building dams upstream, uh, that's a big source of conflict, for example, in Indus and Amazon. Uh, basins, what we have found, even in Nile River most recently, um, what we have found is what's happening upstream uh, in Ethiopia is affecting downstream countries or also in uh, Mekong River Basin, where I've been uh, working in more recently as well. And uh, dams are a major source of conflict with Chinese that dams upstream. Um, or um, in the case of Indus, like Indians have been building dams that affect the downstream uh, Pakistani community. So, um, but so the water quantity can create conflict, and there are a lot of technical ways and political ways that we can try to find solutions. 
But when we talk about water quality, we find that many, many uh, situations where people are in conflict, they want to cooperate about it because everybody cares about clean water. Everybody wants to maintain clean water because uh, their livelihoods depend. Like in Mekong River, we have seen millions of people like who depend on fish, for example, as source of livelihood, uh, or, mm-hmm. or, or rice water. Or similarly, you know, like in Indus Basin, uh, it's like the agricultural bread basket, like that. It's like in the Indus Basin exports probably uh, one of the largest shares of carbon across the world. So it's a, it's really, um, you know, like a, uh, I think a question of like water quality promotes cooperation and people want to talk to each other. And that's why my Global Fulbright Award, but also the work that I'm doing here in Lake Champlain Basin that cuts across uh, Vermont, um, uh, New York, and Quebec, uh, we have found is that, for example, there's International Joint Commission that's working in this space uh, with our uh, NSF Vermont Escrow funded project, um, where we are engaging stakeholders. So, uh, like in the case of Lake Champlain, for example, the phosphorus pollution that we are uh, putting in the lake, since the lake goes northwards and there are also wind effects, um, you know, like it flows northwards into um, the, the Quebec portion. Um, um, and and uh, there, there could be climate change induced effects in terms of like how algal blooms that are being caused in the Lake Champlain, who is contributing towards that? Because Vermont being the upstream country in this case, right? Even though we are south. It's just, uh, so, so these are like these solutions could be found by negotiations through science, by understanding like, who's contributing that much and finding shared agreements and, uh, and figuring out treaties where, where if possible to kind of like uh, set these uh, cooperative mechanisms in like institutionally and, and, and find sustainable solutions in the long run that kind of like, then we can then avert the crisis and conflict that way, I think so. Yeah, that sounds like, um, re- really interesting work there. And it is, it is, um, kind of cool to have a, uh, it's very cool to have a, uh, have a river be the focal point because we know, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, land disputes, uh, the actual, Land borders and so on shift over time and et cetera, and they're fairly, uh, can be fairly unstable in many parts of the world. Uh, rivers, uh, typically, um, are gonna be around for a while and have been around. And now obviously I know rivers can have conditions change within them and sometimes even change course and so on, but, uh, generally they are, uh, they are long-standing <laughs> things to, uh, for people to care about and, and, uh, and, and I imagine would be helpful sometimes in terms of, International relations and this sort of thing. Um, the uh, tell us about this the twin network. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to recall what twins st- stood for, but it uh, it oh, the um, oh here we go transboundary water in cooperation network. And uh, this is something that looks like the University of Vermont is uh, actually uh, playing somewhat of a leadership role. Is that right? Yes, that's very correct. Um, so. Um, this kind of like work has been initiated as a major initiative by Institute for Institute for Environment Diplomacy and Security, um, and uh, um, also like uh, with collaborators of the Gund Institute for Environment, uh, Vermont EPSCO. Um And most importantly, this came about in an initiative. It started with our conversations with Bennington College has in Vermont, in the Southern Vermont has um, the Center for Public Service. Um, the Kappa Institute, where Sundar Gavari is um, my lead collaborator, um, she's done a lot of work in environmental mediation and conflict resolution. And we were doing work on track one and track two and track three environmental diplomacy initiatives uh, in at that point in time in Arctic and these other parts of the world who are used. And so we kind of like uh, came together and uh, 
And they were doing work in more recently, like Armenia and Azerbaijan and Turkey, probably, you know, like that's an ongoing conflict right now as well. So we came together and organized uh, a couple of meetings. And in that meeting, we found that, like, they had their uh, geographical domains, like Central Asia, Central Europe, um, and some work in Africa, like in Jordan River. And I was doing work in um, Indus Basin and Amazon um, and Mekong River. And previously, more recently, I've been, like, working in uh, Lake Champlain Basin as well as in Vermont. Um, and uh, Nile River. So we basically kind of like brought together people and they're like uh, scientists and community activists and uh, government experts uh, in various meetings. One meeting was extensively held in Montreal a few years ago and uh, where, where we kind of like uh, put together these people for a week and kind of like figure out ways how we can institutionalize this. So that's where the idea of Clint came into play. It's really like a network of networks approach where uh, we said, well, we are bringing together these people from so many different places, but they themselves are um, like centers of networks. So, for example, one of the partners that we brought from uh, Kabul River, from Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is a tributary of Indus River, uh, they are themselves like uh, have a network of like 3,000 community-based organizations that span across the uh, kind of like a Kabul River, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So, you know, like these are like themselves networks. So, so Twin is basically a network of networks that brings together people uh, for and, and community organizations and scientists uh, to figure out how to um, kind of like identify these risks that are posed by uh, kind of like not only drivers like global scale drivers like climate change or globalization or urbanization, but also their own community-based problems, like what, what, what they are doing in terms of like making sure that the water is safe and water is clean or water is conserved or those approaches like the forests are conserved so that the water does not get affected. So those kind of like solutions that get what we call like multi-level interventions. Uh, we're also doing a lot of like behavioral change communication in terms of how do you make sure that um, the, the communities uh, and people are aware um, that what they can do in terms of their own uh, behavior, whether they are farmers or whether they are uh, like people living in villages or urban uh, like suburbia, even in slums uh, or camps, uh, refugee camps we work there. So it's like a question of like how do you bring about this awareness and and and, and make them um, live more in a sustainable and resilient fashion that 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 helps them. Even though there are a lot of challenges, but working at the community scale is the really real focus of our twin network at this point. And we've we've been like uh, engaged in a variety of activities. I can like talk a lot more about if you want to like have specific region or issue in mind. But I just just wanted to provide the broader overview that it's like very. Uh, yeah, uh, Professor, uh, which of these rivers would you say uh, currently is in the roughest shape uh, in, in in terms of environmental quality and so on, and and which is the most problematic in terms of uh, sort of geopolitics and et cetera, the relations between nations? I think uh, environmentally, I would say Amazon is the most like Amazon. Amazon is called like the lungs of the earth because they've dropped, like, so much carbon dioxide from the atmosphere so because of this, like, when we emit in the climate change, we cause climate change by emitting greenhouse gas emissions, and and these forests absorb a lot of that. So if we cut down those forests, basically, we would be in a even, like, uh, deeper problem, right? So uh, Amazon is, uh, in, because of that, in the, what's going on in terms of like, environmental destruction, you might have seen, uh, like, fires being burnt under Bolsonaro's government in Brazil, 
Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the deforestation is happening because of the global demand in agricultural products. Like everybody wants to eat um, stuff uh, or use the stuff that's produced out of Brazilian forests and then exported to China and international trade mechanisms. And, and prices of these commodities are increasing in the world. So that's kind of like leading to a more and more deforestation. And we've been like really trying to work. I had a, a, a large five-year grant from MacArthur Foundation between 2007 and uh, 2012 to uh, study uh, deforestation issues in uh, Amazon, and I went there and worked in Peru and Ecuador. Um, and my uh, part of my Fulbright award is also based in Ecuador. And uh, I've also worked with collaborators in Brazil. So that's like the major challenge. I think like, um, and, and now also like uh, Brazil, for example, is building a lot of dams. Even Ecuador and uh, in Peru, a lot of dams are being built. There's a lot of mining that's happening. That's leaving indigenous people vulnerable to the like a uh, toxic, um, we found like mercury uh, from gold mining in Peru, for example, in the Madre de Dios region of one of the tributaries of Amazon. So it's like, a, uh, I think like uh, Amazon environmental destruction is like, would not, would not only affect the people and communities there, but I'm trying to make an argument is that that's going to affect everybody in the world. Um, yeah. And, and it would also change the weather cycle globally. Um, and then uh, in terms of conflict, we, I would say, uh, Jordan and Indus probably um, come equal um, because the Jordan River is because the Israel-Palestine conflict is so central to human civilization and human history in the last 1,000 years um, that it's, it's, it's very geopolitically very hot issue. Uh, wow. I think from the perspective of a world, like a water war, if, you, if I say like if there could be a water war in 21st century, it could happen in the, in the space. Well, I, Professor, I'm afraid we are about out of time, unfortunately. I'd love to talk more about this, and we might have to do that at some juncture in the near future. But uh, thank you so much for joining me this morning, Professor Asim Zia of the University of Vermont. Uh, really important and fascinating hey, topics we're getting into. Thank you so much. Uh, let's go to a top-of-the-hour break for some CBS News. We'll be back with more of the Dave Graham Show to follow, folks. Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren Store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. We are back. Thanks for staying with us into the second hour of our program on this uh, Thursday morning, October the 15th. And uh, as we often like to do with, uh, just after the mid-show break, we like to uh, get one of our CBS News correspondents on the show uh, for a one-on-one interview. And uh, Jim Crisula joins us today. Uh, he's based in North Carolina, I believe, with uh, CBS. And uh, Jim is uh, following uh, the coronavirus issues uh, and uh sort of the uh, developments around the country and wanted to get an update on all of that. Uh, Jim, uh, give us uh, today's headlines on how uh, how we're doing in this pandemic around the United States. Jim, can you hear me? I can, yes. Okay, there you are. I, I was just, uh, I don't know if you heard my question, but I was, I was just hoping you could kind of give us uh, the broad overview of uh, how the uh, how the pandemic has been unfolding in the last uh, few days here in the United States? Well, unfortunately, uh, new cases are on the rise in at least 37 states. Only three are seeing decreases at this point. And nearly 15 states 
have broken records for hospitalizations, COVID hospitalizations, just in the last week. Uh, seeing a lot of reports about, especially in rural areas, and it seems in the nation's heartland, these cases are really increasing rapidly. Places like Kansas, the Dakotas, Wisconsin, of course, has been in the news the last couple of weeks. In fact, early last week, the governor of Wisconsin activated a uh, temporary hospital setup, if you will, at the state fairgrounds outside Milwaukee because of surging coronavirus cases. The Democratic governor of Kentucky, Andy Bashir, said yesterday that it was, in his words, shocking to see how rapidly cases are increasing across the bluegrass state of Kentucky. So, again, it continues to go up uh, about 50,000 new cases daily over the last week or so. And, and again, across many areas of the country, it seems mostly, though, at this point, the hotspots appear to be in the nation's heartland. What are the three states, if you know, uh, where uh, where the rates are declining right now? Interestingly enough, one of them is Arizona. And, of course, Arizona has been a hotspot over yep. the last several months. Uh, that's one of the one of the states. Uh, also, Georgia, they're actually going down. And again, that's a bit of a surprise, too, because uh, Georgia has seen a, a big increase in, in cases over the last several months. Hmm. And the um, I mean, is this is this people have talked for months now about a fear of a resurgence or a new wave or something in the fall? Is that what we're seeing here? Yeah, and I think part of that is that that many of these states, Florida, for example, uh, the governor there, Ron DeSantis, the Republican, a couple of weeks ago, uh, allowed basically everything to reopen, restaurants to fully reopen. Uh, So, again, the case is going up in the sunshine state of Florida. I think also what you're seeing, too, in a lot of places, uh, we're seeing these outbreaks continuing and even to worsen on many college campuses. That's Hmm. certainly no surprise, but again, we're seeing that in in many states. Are people becoming any more uh, uh, willing to wear masks and do practice social distancing and, you know, the other steps that have been recommended for months now? I can tell you that I actually was just, uh, the past week or so, uh, took some time off, and my wife and I were in the North Carolina mountains, and just as a personal observation, uh, it seemed to me that maybe 50 to 60 percent of people had a face covering. Uh, so, again, it, it, it seemed to me still a lot of people uh, reluctant or, or opposed for whatever reason or reasons to wearing a face mask. But And, again, I think that's, that, that's certainly part of the problem here, the issue. And, again, obviously, this, this whole thing about as is the case with so much of, of our society, it's become political, the whole argument and the whole debate over wearing a face mask. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting to me because years ago, you know, I'd, I'd go up to the glass door of a store and I'd see a sign that said, uh, no shirt, no shoes, no service, right? right? And and yeah. which was a public health measure. And I just, it never occurred to me to think that that was at all connected with anybody being a Republican or a Democrat. And, right, uh, infringing on anyone's rights, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, why, why the change here, do we think? Again, I, I don't know if, if obviously, the, President Trump, you, you know, did not make 
uh, wearing a mask an important issue or, or important, making a, a, an important statement that, hey, early on, that this could perhaps slow the, the spread of this virus, of this disease, of this illness. So, again, I mean, has that come into play? I, I, I would suspect so, certainly among people who support the president. Um, but, again, this is something that these health officials continue to talk about the need for doing. There was the first and only debate in North Carolina last night of the Democratic governor and his Republican challenger, and they started debating in the debate face mask. And the Republican challenger uh, running for North Carolina governor basically said and there's no proof that face masks are any deterrent. To, to keeping you safe or, or making you safer from coronavirus. So, again, there, there, there's just that that line of thinking, that way of thinking that's out there. Yeah, of course, face masks are, um, I think from the beginning, the, the, the main advantage that people cited with face masks is not so much that they will uh, protect the person wearing one, but they protect other people from that person, I guess. And maybe that's... Uh, that's a uh, a bridge of altruism that's too far a bridge too far for some people i don't know but uh uh you know and, and again i've made the point here on the show before that uh we honor people in america who put on gear every day in the name of protecting other americans i'm thinking here of you know police officers and members of the military firefighters and so on they put on lots of gear every day to go out and do their work of protecting other Americans. To the extent that face masks can can protect other people, uh, it seems like a pretty minor thing to put a little piece of cloth over your nose and mouth uh, compared to you know putting on a 40-pound uh, air pack for a firefighter or you know all the gear that a police officer or a member of the military puts on. And uh, so I, I think uh, some, maybe people should think about it that way, kind of doing their duty for their fellow citizens or something. I don't know. Does that make sense? No, I, I, I think you're right. I, and I think there's certainly a number of people who would agree with you, probably maybe just as many would disagree with you. But, again, that's how polarized we have become in all of this and in so much of society, it seems, right now. Yeah, well, there we go. And the beat goes on. Jim Crisula of CBS News, uh, thank you very much for joining me this morning. It's great talking with you. Same here, Dave. Take care. Stay well, stay safe, and maybe most importantly and, and hardest of all, stay sane. <laughs> we'll, we'll try all of the above, and you too. Yeah, all right. Take care. Uh, we're seeing reports from states around the country like Texas and uh, Georgia, California, place all, all around uh, where uh, people are lining up in droves well ahead of the uh, November 3rd election day to cast their ballots early. I guess there's just a heck of a lot of enthusiasm out there for getting out there and, and uh, making your, as our uh, Secretary of State here in Vermont, Jim Condos, likes to say, your voice is your vote, and uh, uh, your, your vote is your voice, <laughs> I think is the way he puts it. And, and uh, e- either way, they, they equate for sure. Anyway, uh wanted to talk about the role of businesses in the United States. Now, businesses historically, from my estimation, have not been uh, gotten themselves super involved in elections, in part because I'm sure uh, there's a, a general desire not to uh, uh, annoy uh, half of your clientele. <laughs> so <clears throat> keep your head down around election time has generally been the policy uh, for most of my lifetime from what I've known of uh, business people. Uh, but uh, here we have some businesses that are stepping up around the country and saying uh, simply that it is very important to vote. They want to make sure to do whatever they can to help get the voting process uh 
done smoothly and accurately, etc. And we have a couple of folks here to talk to us about that this morning. Uh, Richard Eidland uh, is with uh, Businesses for America. Uh, Jen Swain is with uh, Burton Snowboards, uh, based here in Vermont. Uh, and uh, I appreciate the two of you joining me this morning. Uh, thank you and welcome to the Dave Graham Show. Good morning, Dave. Hi, Richard here. And Jen, are you there as well? Hi, Dave. Thanks so much for having us. Glad to do it. And uh, let me start with you, Richard, if I could. Um, there's a uh, very interesting program that uh, I believe you are involved in uh, right now, Businesses for America's Operation Vote Safe. Um, and uh, what is Operation Vote Safe? Yes, uh, Dave, uh, thanks for asking. And, and it is singular business for America. And Operation Vote Safe is a national nonpartisan effort designed to uh, engage businesses across the country to help election officials and get out the vote organizations secure the necessary PPE and related supplies and equipment in order to run what we call a safe and secure election. So there are many different companies, including Burton Snowboards, that's been working with us to help provide face masks and face shields, um, sanitizer, spray, uh, food, and other supplies, including recruiting poll workers, because our um, thinking is that given that election officials across the country are short of resources and there's going to be an unprecedented turnout, Uh, It was an opportunity for the private sector to step up and help ensure a well-run election in 2020. And um, in terms of the personnel, that's that's a really key question right now. I would think with uh, the election just, uh, you know, two and a half weeks away, basically, um, what... uh, what are uh, states finding around the country? Are states really running short of uh, enough people to just just run the polling places? Well, in some in some cases that is true. Uh, let me just give you a quick background. As you remember, when COVID became uh, a real issue back in the middle of March and then in, into early April, many state and local election authorities recognized that traditional poll workers, people in their seventies might not show up, and in a number of other instances, election officials recognize that the you know typical location, the school, the library, the senior center, probably wasn't a suitable location for uh, a polling site, and that many people would end up voting by mail, as has proven to be the case. So that kind of scrambled everything for many election officials across the country, and as revenues started dropping for states because people weren't buying as much, uh, you know, in April and May, that created a financial shortfall, which led to many states not having the money they needed to go buy the equipment and PPE. And that has all cascaded um, into a shortage of poll workers in many places that is being filled now and is somewhat being addressed. But we have found, and I, I'll give you examples here later, of states that have actually really needed uh, plexiglass, knees guard, dividers, or uh, masks, or face shields. Hmm. And um, um, Jen Swain with uh, Burton Snowboards, uh, 
uh, I'm wondering, are, are you folks focused? Um, I mean, I know your headquarters is here in Vermont, in Burlington. Uh, are, are you focused mainly on Vermont, or are you branching out around the country in your efforts, or what's going on with Burton? Yeah, thanks for the question, Dave. Um, we are focusing our efforts um, in terms of the PPE that we were able to provide um, to a few communities, um, particularly um, uh, in Montana. And, Richard, perhaps you can correct me on this, but uh, Montana, California. Um, and what we've done is basically provided, you know, over a 1,000 units of face shields that were actually manufactured right here in Vermont um, earlier this year when uh, in the midst of the beginning of the pandemic, um, as well as face masks that we um, sewed at our uh, R&D facility um, in Shanghai, China. So we've been distributing to areas that are most in need and areas of the country which are seeing a higher risk generally of the spread of COVID. Um, but that mm. said, our efforts also include um, powering the polls um, through a couple of organizations, including Operation Vote Safe. Um, and so we have over 400 employees that are based right here in the state, and we've been encouraging them and our broader community to sign up um, to be poll workers where they're comfortable to do so. Wow. And uh, have, have have you actually found 400 employees who are going to do this, or um, is, 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 it, is it a case that uh, you've reached out to 400 employees? We've reached out to all of our employees throughout the U.S., so about five, 500 throughout the country um, and our broader community. So actually all of Burton's elections-related efforts are public-facing. We're really trying to help rally the whole outdoor community um, from making a plan to vote to helping to provide uh, safe and secure elections um, in the ways that they're able and to consider mailing in ballots because that's actually incredibly important uh, to help protect our frontline poll workers who do have to show up on election day or in advance. That <clears throat> that idea of mailing in ballots, of course, uh, geared, uh, I mean, if you, talk, if you talk to somebody like uh, Secretary of State Jim Condos here in Vermont, who's been on the show here uh, several times over the course of this year, uh, and he has talked about the desire to uh, basically reduce lines and reduce exposure uh, that you get in lines on Election Day by inviting people to uh, mail in their ballots early or uh, otherwise get their ballots to their in Vermont, their city and town clerks um, early. And so that then, you know, that errand is already taken care of when you wake up on November 3rd. Uh, and I'm wondering if in, in the case of the... Uh, of other states around the country, um, uh, it, it, I mean, I see news reports indicating that there's a lot of early voting going on. Is that is that what, Richard? Would you say is that pretty uh, universal around the country, or is it uh, just a few states that are really strong in that area right now? Yeah, what, what's been really interesting, Dave, to notice this year is many state legislatures changed the rules by which voters could participate. And so right now there are five states in the country where people vote entirely by mail, and that's been the case for a while. That's Colorado, Utah, Oregon, Washington, and Hawaii. Um, but many other states recognizing the problem you identified about safety and the gen noted started shifting the rules and provided early voting or provided drop boxes and started changing the rules about under what conditions could somebody vote absentee? But given that the states run the elections in America, um, uh, 
on a practical basis, every state has a different rule, which has made it uh, complicated, to say the least, to work nationally. And we also know that in a number of states, um, the ballots that get mailed in can't actually be begun to be counted until November 3rd. So what that's going to lead to is the, uh, the, it's unlikely that we'll know the result of the presidential elect, uh, race the evening of November 3rd, because many states will be counting the ballots that day, and many states have also adopted rules that allow any ballot that's been postmarked by November 3rd, it may arrive five to seven days later, that ballot technically is still to be counted. So we've begun talking about you know election season, election week, and um, the suggestion that if we don't know the result on November 3rd, somehow there's evidence of fraud that is uh, inaccurate. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's certainly uh, kind of the, the push and pull on, on a lot of the discussions surrounding the election right now is we're hearing that, it, you know, there, there likely will be kind of a no outcome, uh, no call on, uh, on the evening of, of uh, November 3rd and, and, uh, um, and that people are just going to basically be asked to be, to be patient. Um, and, and if there's, uh, any clamor coming from any quarter uh, uh, for um, for the, the the vote counting basically we halted uh, just you know we this is enough we've done enough let's call it now kind of stuff um, how will that be uh, countered would you say Richard well there are many different efforts they've underway right now um, by a range of not not-for-profit groups and civic groups as well as business organizations that are counseling patients calling for respecting the rules uh, explaining uh, what the rules actually are and there have been a number of conversations with um, with mainstream media as well to not prematurely call the race because in fact there may be millions and millions of votes that haven't been uh, acknowledged on November 3rd. So uh, we as an organization, Business for America, is working with companies like Burton and Patagonia and Ben and & Jerry's and Seventh Generation and many other companies across the country and sort of developing our own messaging um, in, in a, a lot that's aligned with other organizations uh, that will help explain to employees and customers of those companies that this is how the process works. There's nothing... Uh, untoward about it. Uh, nobody's trying to cheat, but in fact, we want every vote counted. And if you hear that somehow the process is you know, supposedly being manipulated behind the scenes, that's extremely unlikely to be the case because all the secretaries of state have to do their job, Republicans and, and Democrats alike, and count the ballots um, that come in. We uh, have a couple listeners checking in, uh, and by the way, we do welcome uh, listener participation here. Two four four one seven 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 is the local number in Waterbury. The toll free number is one eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five. Let's go to Michael in Barrytown. Michael, what's on your mind this morning? Oh, good morning, Dave. Uh, I think this is a question for Richard. Okay. Currently, we're all aware of the multitudinous ways that the Republicans are attempting to skew the election results from removing mail sorting 
machines, uh, boxes, mailboxes. Uh, there are a number of ways. So at least in my mind, and I'm sure in the minds of many people, the specter of Bush v. Gore currently looms large. So I'm wondering whether there is a scenario whereby Biden can reach the necessary 270 electoral college votes in states apart from those controlled by the Republicans. And I frame the question because it seems that all you'd have to have is a state controlled by Republicans call in and say that they found X number of counterfeit ballots or ballots missing and that they could easily drive this to the Supreme Court. Is there a scenario of winning without Republican-controlled states? Well, let's see if uh, Richard has any thoughts on that. Richard? Yeah, yeah. Well, again, uh, Michael, I'll mention that we are a nonpartisan 501c3 group, so I I won't pronosticate on uh, what one party might do or another, but I think there are many scenarios in which either candidate could secure 270 electoral votes. And uh, I think part of the, um, the how people will respond will depend on the turnout and whether it seems like an overwhelming majority of voters, uh, you know, cast their ballot one way or another. I do also anticipate that there will be a number of lawsuits because as you Michael may have noticed over the past number of weeks and months, um, there have been dozens and dozens of lawsuits across the country. And, you know, a case in point is Pennsylvania, where you know, every every other day uh, there is a reversal of a previous judicial decision. So, <laughs> yes. um, so you know, it, it could end up in the Supreme Court. Um, I, I myself don't think so, but there are any number of scenarios and uh, I think it might make you feel better to know that there are lots of organizations across the country that are thinking uh, along the same lines that you are and taking steps to try to game out you know, what a, an appropriate response might be. Well, can you tell me what your main reason is for believing that it's not going to land in the, with the Supremes? I, I think it's going to be a fairly uh, decisive uh, outcome, I think turnout is quite high right now, and I, I think that uh, a lot of this will be decided uh, by the secretaries of state who are, you know, responsible for verifying, certifying those results. And in our conversations with secretaries of state across the country, Republicans and Democrats, I think they will make sure the process is upheld. I pray that you're right, Richard. Thank you very much for your response. Thanks, Dave, for taking the question. Sure. Uh, thanks. Thanks for the call, Michael. Um, we also have Jim on uh, Jim on the line from Barry. I'm afraid that's going to have to wait uh, until after the break because we've got to go to a CBS News Minute here at the bottom of the hour. A couple words from our sponsors. Uh, we'll be back and continue our conversation with uh, Jen Swain of uh, of uh, Burton Snowboards and uh, and Richard Idlin of um, Richard give me the name of the group again I don't want to get the plural wrong or whatever sure Um, yeah yeah, yes Business for America Business for America there we go already uh, let's go to that break exciting things are happening in Warren Village 
The Pitcher Inn and Warren store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. My guests are Richard Island of uh, Business for America, Business for America, and uh, Jen Swain of Burton Snowboards. We're talking about the role of uh, the businesses have taken on around the country in trying to promote uh, voting uh, in this upcoming election or ongoing election, I guess is a better word. Uh, also, um, and how they are working to try to help. Uh, polling places and other aspects of the election go off uh, smoothly. And uh, it's really, it really sounds like quite an effort that's going on in the states around the country. Um, and, Jen, I, I wanted to get a, a sense from you in talking to employees at Burton Snowboards just as sort of one representative business we have here. Um, what is the general mood there about the election? Are people really anxious? Are they fearful that something will go badly wrong? Are they... Uh, I mean, aside from just, uh, you know, maybe some people favoring one side or the other and worried about their side not winning. I mean, that's one source of anxiety in any election. But it seems as though, um, you know, I'm hearing a lot about uh, other sources of anxiety in this election in particular. And I'm wondering if they are sort of showing up among your folks there. Thanks for the question, Dave. Um, We at Burton have not... Um, been working from the office as a full staff since March 13th. So we don't quite have the water cooler effect where we can really take the, the pulse of the organization. We have about 5 to 10% of our staff working in the office wow. and we're all at home, the rest of us, to protect those workers who do need to be there. Um, yeah. So that said, um, there's certainly a level of anxiety, I think probably what, what we're seeing throughout communities um, and <clears throat> I think what's most important, you know, in terms of of being an employer, but also as a business, um, I think there's a responsibility to help address that anxiety and also not to spread it further. So, um, you know, we were talking earlier about this need to ensure patience and trust in the process and allow for the complete process of voting in this ongoing election and and through counting votes um, post, you know, on and post election day. And so I think that that's really a responsibility that we all hold um, as individuals and businesses to promote um, uh, a safe and, and trusted election this year. Are uh, people obviously are going to be re- uh, relying more on the Postal Service this year with the uh, much much greater use of mail-in ballots? And uh, uh, there have been questions, I'm sure you've seen in the news, about uh whether the Postal Service will be up for the task and uh, whether it's going to be uh, uh, remain unmolested enough to be up for the task. Um, we just had a story in the last 24 hours, I think, here in Vermont about a key piece of equipment being pulled out of, a, of a, the Postal Service Center in White River Junction, which uh, processes a lot of the state's mail, um, and... And, and some great alarm about that. Uh, are folks, do you feel as though people are, gen- are, are people you talk to confident that uh, in the Postal Service and its, its role here, its increased role in this election? 
I think it's up to uh, government from municipalities to state and federal to ensure that um, we are supporting the Postal Service to the extent possible and that we are making accommodations where um, where ballots that were, you know, put into the mail at a reasonable time actually get counted once they're received. So I think that that's that, again, is a responsibility of kind of, of our, our greater society, but, you know, at the local level, of course, Um in terms of what, what Burton has been promoting to our employees, but our whole community, um, we've offered a make a plan to vote tool through our nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan partner, Protect Our Winters. Um, so it's available on our website and through other um, marketing channels. And what that offers is the opportunity to request a ballot. So we're lucky here in Vermont that we did um, ensure that all Vermonters who are registered to vote did receive a a ballot to vote by mail, but that's not true in many other um, countries. They're sorry, states throughout the country. Um, and mm-hmm. so we've actually been um, paying the fee for processing and uh, shipping ballots to people's homes in other areas of this country. At this point, we're starting to change um, or, or to evolve our messaging at this point in the uh, the election season um, to start to push people to deliver ballots to ballot boxes um, or to make a plan to vote in person early, um, if possible, um, mm-hmm. because we do recognize there is a concern about about the mail processing time. Yeah, I guess as we draw closer to the election and, and uh, you know, even defenders of the of the Postal Service and, and those who, who are hoping and expecting it will uh, perform as well as it could um, are are saying that, as you get into the last few days before the election, you're you're probably better off uh, getting the ballot to your uh, polling station uh, yourself. And uh, even if you do so early, in fact, it's recommended for many folks they do so early so they can avoid those lines that are, uh, you know, the object of the game here is to avoid big crowds, and, and, uh, and that includes uh, on, on Election Day for sure. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Richard Eidland, uh, Business for America, are... What is what is your uh, view of the picture kind of out there around the country right now? Are are people feeling like uh, they're really worried about mailing ballots in and are preferring to uh, to go and vote early in person, or uh, what, what's the sense out there? Yeah, well, let, let me just uh, let me just pick up on uh, something that Jen mentioned. So, what Burton is doing, Dave, is really emblematic of what literally thousands of companies across the country are doing in terms of engaging their employees um, and stakeholders and, you know, customers. And um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that there's a broader effort called Time to Vote, which ha- which was started by pa- Patagonia, Levi's, and PayPal, that um, wherein companies are giving their employees time off to vote. And they see that as part of their corporate civic responsibility. So, Business for America has been been part of that, and as Jen suggested, uh, there's been a lot of encouragement by large companies from J.P. Morgan Chase to, to Patagonia to Burton to Home Depot um, to have their employees participate. And so there's there's been a lot of recommendations given about how to vote by mail, how to vote early, the importance of having know, being registered and uh, understanding how the process works. So I, I think the Postal Service, just to go to, back to that for a moment, you know, in the recent hearings that Commissioner 
DeJoy participated in, he seemed to acknowledge um, that maybe there had been some overreach, and he committed during those hearings to treat ballots as a priority and to treat them as first-class postage. Um, so the, we will see what exactly happens, um, but there does seem to have been a, a red alert light flashing and many organizations uh, and secretaries of state and local election officials are now really closely tracking how long it's taking for something to get through the mail. Fortunately, in a lot of jurisdictions, there are drop boxes. But as you know, uh, in some places like Texas at the moment, there is one drop box per county, and that could mean driving 50 miles across town to put your pallet in a Dropbox. So Yikes. that goes back to this uh, situation with lawsuits. And, um, you know, I think looking ahead after this election, if I may just for a moment, that our organization will be uh, focused on making some long-term changes to how the election process is run. Because clearly uh, the rules in some places are not not designed to facilitate ease of voting, which is unfortunate. Let's bring in another listener. We have Jim from Barry with us. Jim, thanks for being patient. Hi, good morning. Good I wanted morning. to make a comment uh, about something that um, Secretary of State Jim Condell said last week, which I think is uh, germane to the current conversation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he was talking about Voter intimidation and poll watches. Now, voter intimidation is something that is just totally unacceptable at all levels, and is certainly as un-American as it gets. But poll watching and vote is not voter intimidation, and and he kind of glossed over that. He did say that there's a an official poll watching position, but the poll watching position is a statutorily created position that allows one person from all of the or each of the uh, major parties to put a person at the poll to be a poll watcher. And it's rooted, the genesis of it is rooted in wanting to have a transparent and universally considered uh, credibility of the election. And what the poll watcher is supposed to be able to do by statute is to sit in a position close enough to hear the person state their name when they go up to sign in to, to vote. Now, statutorily, you could have known the, the poll worker all your life, and you're still supposed to say, my name is so-and-so from such-and-such such a street. That's mm-hmm. because of the poll watcher has to be able to hear that person. And it is to to some degree, hopefully, to root out someone saying, I'm John Smith, and the person, poll watcher says, no, you're not. You're Bill Jones. And... That's the root of it, but it was it was rooted way back in when everyone agreed that the election has to be above board, uh, transparent, and and satisfactory to everyone that it was a, a fair deal. And that's the part that I, I think that he he slid over. I've been a poll watcher. Unfortunately, the position is not used utilized as much as it should be. And there's sometimes some hostility toward the poll watcher. They want to put them someplace where they're out of the way, and, and it's annoying to them. But the, the statute says they have to be close enough to hear the person, state their name, and then after the election you can't say, 
well, people voted that weren't their, their name. Well, you could have put a person there if you wanted to. And anyway, that's my point, and I think he kind of glossed over it, but voter intimidation is not acceptable. The official poll-watching position is not voter intimidation. Let me get the thoughts of our guests here. Um, uh, and, and thank you for the call, Jim. I, I think you raise an interesting question here about, uh, you know, is there a, a potentially blurred line between poll watching and voter intimidation? Uh, and uh, Richard Eidland of Business for America, uh, what uh, what do you want to tell us about that? Well, I, I, I agree with the points just made, and that is an official position of poll watcher, and it is, uh, from my understanding, in most jurisdictions, very few people that are authorized to be inside. Uh, I think the uh, things have gotten a bit confused because President Trump has encouraged many people to show up as poll watchers, uh, and I don't think he's been necessarily aware of the statutory requirements of what it means to be a poll watcher, being inside a facility. And being a poll watcher does not mean you're outside um, getting in the way of other people wanting to vote. So I think this issue of poll watching has become um, you know, somewhat contentious because in some situations, and we saw this in Virginia two weeks ago, uh, people showed up outside of a polling facility in Fairfax uh, and, you know, physically got in the way of people wanting to go inside to vote. So, you know, back to this point of uh, counseling patients and respecting the rule of law, you know, we as a business organization um, encourage people to exercise their right to vote, but not act to intimidate other people. Um, and that means, you know, not interfering with people showing up uh, to vote. Um, and, and again, the rules vary from state to state. Yeah, that's, that is a, um, something which, um, let me ask Jen, Jen Swain. Jen, do you expect that any of the folks from Burton will be uh, assuming the position of poll? the sort of official position, I can't imagine that that, that, uh, that there's any uh, voter intimidation being encouraged here, but but uh, uh, that is an official position uh, at polling places around the country to have, say, a representative of each major party actually in the polling station and uh, just observing what's going on, making sure everything's on the up and up. Um, are folks from Burton going to be doing that? Dave, we're not tracking which positions um, particular employees are signing up for. It is it is managed at um, the local level. Um, uh, certainly, you know, acknowledge the point and the the purpose of the official position. Um, and I, I echo Richard's points about and we need to be ensuring that um, unofficial poll watching doesn't lead to intimidation because the accessibility of elections and a person's ability to exercise their right to vote. Um, is of utmost importance. So we respect the position where it where it is official. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we are talking about the election and uh, efforts by uh, business folks to uh, help to make sure the election goes smoothly in the United States and, and make sure that uh, people are able to vote and that their votes are counted accurately, et cetera, and uh, and in full. A uh, lot of concern about the upcoming election, not least of uh, of uh, of it uh, created by, frankly, President Trump, who has talked about uh, rejecting ballots, uh, which I guess uh, 
might come in after the election if they are being ma- if they have been mailed in, for instance. Uh, he has expressed a preference for counting of ballots to stop on the evening of November 3rd. Uh, there is uh, obviously a big push on to make sure that uh, even if ballots are counted be- after that evening, uh, which they may very well be because uh, apparently it's a slower process to get the mail-in ballots counted, uh, that uh, there's sort of this push and pull now. Do we... Do we uh, Call the election on election night, uh, as has been the case in in the recent past decades of the the United States, or do we uh, do we give it a little more time and uh, make sure that uh, all the ballots coming in, especially by mail, are going to be counted? Um, and Richard, you mentioned a couple moments ago. I wanted to flesh this out a little bit with you. Um, it sounded like you were uh, talking about the possibility of you know sort of revisiting some of these issues when we're not in the heat of an immediate election season as we are right now, um, do you think that there would be uh, good reason for maybe the the Congress to take up a uh, package of election reforms to try to uh, bring about more uniformity among states and their different approaches or to uh, try to uh, just smooth out the whole process? I I know Congress will take that issue up, Dave, but, um, you know, one of the key uh, foci next year will be the Voting Advancement Rights Act, which is sort of reauthorizing the original Voting Rights Act of 1965, which, as you might recall, uh, the Supreme Court a number of years ago decided was no longer necessary to be enforced, and that was uh, the case for a number of southeastern states where voter suppression has been a historic issue. Um, so I know Congress will take that up, but uh, practically speaking, it is the responsibility of the states to run the elections in the United States, and each state has the responsibility and authority to come up with its own rules. So I think while Congress can provide additional funding to state, administ- state election officials to help them buy new equipment and address cybersecurity threats, which, you know, is a whole other topic we, we haven't talked about, um, it really will be up to state legislatures and the governor and secretaries of state to look at the procedures they use and ask themselves whether the system in place is enfranchising people or trying to somehow uh, inadvertently depress the vote. So... You know, a case in point, again, is this issue of drop boxes. I mean, what is the logic having one drop box in, you know, in a county in, in Texas? I, I find that difficult to understand what the practicality of that is. Um, so that that will be a big topic for state legislatures, I think, in, in 21. Let me let me push on the on the Dropbox issue there for a moment because, uh, frankly, this is the uh, the first time I had heard of ele- of ballots being put in drop boxes. Uh, I've, in all the elections I've been around uh, over the course of my life in the United States, I'd never heard of this, this practice before, and in, in a way, it certainly kind of makes sense. But uh, uh, and I could imagine a situation where maybe some county would want to say, "Let's roll this out on an, almost an experimental basis." I guess my question is about this, the, the county in Texas that has only one drop box. Does it have other opportunities? Are there open are there open county offices or polling stations around the county where folks can go in and not drop it, but just uh, hand it in in person or uh, that kind of thing? Yeah, 
There are. Uh, I live in Colorado, so here in, uh, in our state, there are hundreds, of, if not several thousand drop boxes throughout the state that are conveniently located, and uh, it facilitates you know, people being able to easily drop their ballot in a secure box um, that has to be on public property and has to be monitored by a camera, security camera. So mm-hmm. there are certainly legitimate concerns about where you place the box, and you know you don't want to put it in an empty parking lot. Um, and but the issue about um, giving people options, the, the intent of the drop boxes is to minimize people having to vote in standing in line. Yep. Um, and there are again there are different ways to vote in Texas. Um, but for people who want to avoid having to put a stamp on the ballot, uh, who, who may not trust the postal system to get it there on time, it would seem that you'd want to have more drop boxes to facilitate ease of use, you know, by yep. the voter uh, in in this case. Sure. And, 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 that, and, that, <laughs> and that, by the way, in Texas is a state law. That was Governor Abbott who decided that. So that was not a county-by-county county decision. That was a state decision. Right, right. Well, there's a ton of issues here. We could uh, continue probably talking about them all day, but unfortunately we're about out of time. I want to thank my guests, uh, Richard Island of Business for America and Jen Swain of Burton Snowboards for uh, joining us this morning and talking about these election-related issues. Uh, and uh, perhaps we can have you back for a post-mortem at some point when, uh, when it's all over. And I want to thank the two of you very much for today. Thanks so much for having us, Dave. Sure. Uh, Alrighty, that's going to about do it for today's edition of the Dave Graham Show here on WDEB FM and AM. Join us again tomorrow morning about 9 o'clock. And uh, meanwhile, have a good afternoon, folks.